0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. This podcast assumes basic knowledge of crypto and aims to explore some more advanced topics about the crypto markets, such as trading strategies, lending and derivatives. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. This week, I chat with Andrew King, a prominent DeFi investor and founder of Mechanism Capital. Andrew joins us for the second episode of the DeFi Defined series. In this episode, Andrew and I unstack how he got his start to learning DeFi. He talks through the evolution of incentive mechanisms from the early days of liquidity mining to the complex ways that people are interacting with and taking advantage of DeFi's composability. We discuss projects like Synthetix, Compound, ThorChain, Uniswap, Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi Forks, and much more. We also chat through the impact of decentralized governance on new forms of tokenomics. And of course, Andrew gives his interesting take on DeFi East and highlights some differences he finds between the Western and Asian DeFi communities. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hey, Andrew, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you join me on the pod.
1: Thanks for having me, Leslie.
0: I've really been looking forward to our conversation today. I'm excited to have you on for the second episode of our DeFi Defined series. And you're a popular guy, Andrew, on Twitter. Uh, but for those of our listeners who don't already follow the famous at Kang, can you share a bit about yourself and how you're currently involved in the space?
1: Sure. So, you know, how I would describe myself is, you know, I've been someone that's been pretty active across crypto for quite a while, but, you know, more recently specifically focused on DeFi. You know, when a lot of these projects came about two years ago, three years ago, um, when they were in the initial design phase and in the launch phase, I would say they were popular among a specific subset of the crypto community that have kind of stuck along the way, have been able to gain a lot of experience in DeFi and you know, I consider myself one of those people, and just been kind of investing and in, in sharing insights uh, across the space, specifically in DeFi, for the past you know year or two.
0: Yeah, how did you get your start in DeFi? The question that a lot of newcomers ask is, how do you even quote unquote on board to this space? Right, it's a bit different than opening up an account with Binance, for example, and just kind of trading straight on the centralized platform. What was your Early experience with DeFi back when the infrastructure was less mature than it is now?
1: Yeah, I would say my first memorable experience was with MakerDAO. Uh, that was one of the first DeFi projects that really took off and had significant product market fit. You know, at, at that time I wasn't specifically focused on DeFi. It was more so just looking at interesting projects in the space. For me, when I when I saw MakerDAO, it seemed pretty evident that. This concept of trust-minimized credit facility was something that was pretty attractive to people, um, and also this concept of a trust-minimized stablecoin uh, was something that's completely different, and it was completely uh, necessary in, in the space. So, you know, that's the project that is is quite complex as well, because you have so many different kind of intersecting systems and, and mechanics. Just learning MakerDAO in and of itself took, I would say, weeks. and and months of learning and, and being engaged with the community. And then from there on, just kind of started gravitating and learning more towards these other DeFi projects.
0: And what are some early tools that helped you engage with a platform like MakerDAO, just for some of our listeners who really may not have a good grasp on what exactly to use in order to kind of start getting involved in this ecosystem? Like, what does that look like?
1: Yeah. So in terms of just kind of learning about these projects and I guess MakerDAO in in particular, you know, usually kind of the first step is going to their Twitter, seeing, you know, what content they've put out, going on their website, going to their their blogs and and reading, you know, all their updates and and documentation um, and getting familiar with it. And then, you know, after that, these projects all have live apps that are able to connect to MetaMask. And really that's kind of like the only tool that, you necessarily need when interacting with these dApps. From there on, there, there's a lot of other ecosystem projects that are built around uh, MakerDAO and, and other DeFi projects. Specific dashboards, monitoring tools that help you get a sense of, you know, how large these projects are. You know, how specific parameters are set, like stability fee for for MakerDAO. You know, how they're growing over time as well. Those are all really interesting kind of statistics to look at.
0: Yeah. I mean, in our last episode with Jason Choi, we chatted from a fairly high level about what DeFi is and what this current phase of yield farming is all about. And it turns out it's effectively like a series of high risk carry trades wrapped in layers of incentives. Is that accurate or do you have sort of another angle to look at this whole yield farming thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, you can definitely look at it in the perspective of, of of a carry trade or essentially just kind of market neutral yield generating strategies. That's more from, I guess, the um, investor or the fund manager perspective. But then there's also kind of the perspective, which I find more exciting, which is you know the perspective of growing networks. Right, these incentives and yield farming programs are put in place in the first place to be able to. Help bootstrap early networks to help grow attention and get people looking at a specific project and kind of create incentives or subsidies for people to start getting involved, right? And being able to dedicate specific time in their lives to be able to learning a new system because uh, you know there's so much going on in, in DeFi right now. Mind share is pretty limited and everyone's fighting for that, right? So, in some sense, I think of this yield farming stuff is almost kind of like a marketing budget. <laughs> Project.
0: Yeah, I hear you. I feel like there's been quite an evolution in this space when it comes to incentivization. And as new projects have come online, they've been able to figure out innovative ways to bootstrap, as you say, a very organic community. And we'll talk more in depth about some of the projects that are doing that. But just to start anchoring on your point about bootstrapping liquidity, it's a classic chicken and egg problem just not even looking in DeFi, but also in the centralized finance space as well. There's been a lot of exchanges that have come online and faded away over the past few years, Mm -hmm. not because they weren't good at marketing themselves, but really it's about liquidity, right? It's about um, Mm -hmm. how, how do you get new users onto your platform It can't just be airdrops or giveaways or just listing new tokens on the platform, right? That's not ultimately what enables an exchange to survive. It's really the incentivization around liquidity. And that comes in many different forms. And on the DeFi side, what we're seeing now, I feel like, is this rapid implementation of relatively new solutions to solve this chicken and egg problem called token-based network bootstrapping. And this effectively is, is called liquidity mining, right? And, and this is mm-hmm. what incentivizes market liquidity through token rewards. And a project that started doing this really early on is called Synthetics. So can you talk about what they did previous to Compound starting this whole yield farming thing? Um, can you just talk about how they kind of kicked it off?
1: Yeah, sure. So for Synthetics, it's a bit of a complicated system. But I guess, you know, what's important to know about synthetics for those listeners out there that are not familiar with it is that, you know, they offer this essentially decentralized exchange where people can trade these synthetics assets in a manner where they can do it in large size without any slippage and where, you know, they consider this an unlimited liquidity environment. But the thing is, is that. You can't really trade, say, ETH on synthetics or BTC on synthetics. You actually have to buy these synthetic assets. So they have synthetic assets for USD, which they call SUSD. They have synthetic assets for BTC, which they call SBTC, and also for ETH, you know, SETH. There essentially needs to be these entry and exit valves into the system where traders acquire these synthetic assets in the the first place to be able to, to use the system, right? So... That was kind of a major hurdle that they hadn't really kind of solved at the outside of this project. The market for synths was actually pretty illiquid. So it was hard for somebody looking to trade on the index exchange in size to be able to get enough synths in the first place. So what they did was they created a, a Uniswap pool where they paired ETH with SETH. And uh, that pool was was, was special in a way where you know those two assets were effectively pegged to each other. They you know, have the the same value, and so you know you don't have this risk of impermanent loss that you do with other pools that have assets paired with each other that that don't have the same value. But you know that kind of in and of itself didn't create enough of an incentive for people to want to provide liquidity there. So what they did was they created a rewards program whereby they paid out. I think it was at first sixteen thousand SNX per week to liquidity all the liquidity providers that were LPs in this SE ETH Uniswap pool. And they increased this, I think, up to sixty-four thousand ETH or sixty-four thousand SNX per week, which, you know, at one point was more than I think hundred thousand dollars per week in nominal USD terms for people to provide liquidity. And this was so powerful that it blew up this S ETH pool from, you know, at, at the start, it was, you know, only a couple hundred thousand dollars to tens of millions of dollars. It was at the point where it was I think, one-third of total Uniswap liquidity. And so that was kind of a testament to how powerful these liquidity mining programs could be.
0: Yeah, you talked about unlimited liquidity. How does Synthetix enable that?
1: So they enable this through a system where people, which they call SNX stakers or SNX mentors, they are effectively creating these synths. And they're creating them by backing them with their SNX. It, it's a bit of a unique system, and it's different from any type of centralized exchange or uh, anything else that's been out there. So it's kind of a little bit hard to wrap your head around. But these uh, SNX minters, when they create these cents, they effectively have debt, and this debt can grow or it can decrease depending on you know how the value of these cents grow or decrease over time. So if somebody is minting a bunch of SUSD and then they end up selling it to somebody else and that trader that bought the SUSD turns into SBTC and that SBTC grows in value over time, that SNX minter is essentially taking on that risk of that SBTC going up or down. And so, you know, this aspect of SNX minting isn't, isn't risk free or anyway, but you know, people do it because one, they get free leverage and two, because they're compensated by the transaction fees that are generated on, on the synthetics exchange.
0: Got it, so this isn't something that any other exchange within DeFi enables at, at this point?
1: Yeah, it, it's pretty unique from the models uh, that other decentralized exchanges are using.
0: I see, okay, interesting. Well, we'll get back to DEXs a little bit later, but continuing along this evolution, so Synthetics started out with this incentivized rewards program, then about two months ago is when things got a bit wild west. Uh, Compound, a decentralized interest rate protocol, took the spotlight, right? As part of their increasing effort to drive what people call progressive decentralization, Compound Labs, which is the company behind Compound Protocol, created these comp c o m p tokens, and the distribution of these tokens to users really marked Compound's shift towards what I'd say, it's like full community governance, right? All of a sudden, it seemed like everyone was trying to farm comp tokens now because of this incentive mechanism. Were you farming comp at that time as well? And if so, what was your experience like?
1: Uh, I was not farming comp. At that time, Compound definitely had a lot of attention. But at the same time, Balancer was starting their liquidity mining program. And that was um, a little bit less well known. Based on expected value calculations and some scenario analysis, um, it seemed like Balancer would have been a higher opportunity trade. So even though Compound was giving out was something like 200 to 300% APY, Balancer, you know, they didn't, hadn't launched their token at that time, but they launched it in the future. And a retrospective analysis, you'll the, the results that, you know, they are APY was something like a thousand to two thousand plus, depending on, you know, what strategy you used and, and what time you were mining. So. That was something that was very lucrative that was going on at the same time that I think was a little bit more low key.
0: And on that point, then, what fed into the astronomically higher annualized interest rates on a pool like Balancer versus Compound?
1: Yeah, so so when you're looking at yield farming, there's a lot of different inputs into the equation that you have to look at to understand what the yield might be. So, you know, one of them is, is the price of the reward token. So in this case, it would be Compound or Balancer token. It is how much of the tokens are being distributed on a, on a weekly or daily or, or a monthly basis. And then um, there's also the total amount of AUM that is competing with you in liquidity mining, right? Because the more there is, the more that you have to share with these other participants. Looking at Balancer, you know, the price of their token at that time was undetermined, um, you know, had not wa- yet launched on the market. So that was something that, you know, yield farmers had to make an assumption about themselves. But, you know, what you did know was how much value was locked and how much value you're competing with on the liquidity farming side. And then you also know how much tokens are being distributed on on a weekly basis. So basically, it's up to the investor to, to make a projection or an estimate of what these tokens will be trading at in the future so that, you know, you can have an expectation of what that yield might be.
0: Right. And looking at a project like Balancer versus what we were just talking about, Compound, token aside... What are the differences between these two platforms?
1: Compound is essentially a money market. It's a borrow and lend platform where users can uh, you know, deposit their assets and, and receive uh, interest on them, or they can borrow assets. But they, if they want to borrow assets, they have to put up some sort of collateral in the first place. And they're also yielding interest on that collateral. Balancer, on the other hand, it's um, a decentralized exchange. It's very similar to Uniswap, but I would say it's kind of like a Uniswap uh, on steroids because you know it has a lot more functionality. So uh, with Uniswap you have these pools in which you know you have two assets paired up against each other. With Balancer you can have multiple assets in a pool, so you can have up to eight assets at one time. Um, and then also with Balancer you're able to set your own fee rate. So instead of you know standard thirty basis points, you can have five basis points, ninety-five basis points, you know fifty basis points, uh, and then you can also have the ability to, to set the weights in the pool. So, you know, when, when, when you give users these abilities, they have a lot more kind of customization and they're able to create pools which might be more attractive to liquidity provisioning than, you know, the standard kind of set in stone Uniswap pools that, you know, you, you know don't have as much customization ability. I think the flexibility of, of these balancer pools and kind of the increased functionality is definitely being re- reflected in market adoption. And, you know, you've seen Balancer total value locked and assets under management increase really, really rapidly within, you know, essentially since since when they launched around three, four months ago. And, you know, they've already surpassed Uniswap. That could be also a function of, you know, the liquidity mining program, which Uniswap doesn't have. But, you know, I think it's also a reflection of the customization and the additional features that Balancer enables.
0: Yeah, I'm looking on DeFi Pulse here and Balancer's number seven, Uniswap is... At ten, and yeah it's got like twice almost of total value locked currently, which I feel like before this whole yield farming thing wasn't the case right Uniswap was probably the predominant decks that people were using
1: yeah that's that's definitely the case balancer it, it's kind of like hard to be able to analyze on like a on a controlled basis because you know when they launched, they pretty much had yield farming within three weeks or so you know they've essentially had yield farming from the start whereas you know, Uniswap, they don't have kind of like direct yield farming from you know, the Uniswap foundation or the protocol, but there are projects that also launch on Uniswap and they add liquidity mining incentives for people contributing to those Uniswap pools. So Ampleforth is one example. They incentivize the Ample-Eth Uniswap pool. And then, you know, Synthetix-Eth was also an example that that program has since been decommissioned. And then there are a few others as well.
0: I see. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So, you know, one question that I've been thinking about quite a bit is how protocols can create incentives that reinforce user behavior. And and we've already touched on that a little bit, but a project that I think does this very well. And in a very innovative way is Thorchain, which is a decentralized liquidity protocol that allows cross chain asset swaps. So I think similar to Uniswap, um, on ThorChain, cross-chain swapping, I guess, is not limited to ERC-20 tokens, right? Or is it actually limited on Uniswap? I can't remember.
1: Yeah, Uniswap, you're limited to essentially ERC-20 tokens, anything on ETH. For for ThorChain, right, they're kind of like cross-chain. Uniswap is uh, how people like to refer to it. You can have... Uh, asset swap from the Bitcoin chain to the Binance chain to the Ethereum chain to the Monero chain. It all kind of depends on what bridges are built. But, you know, the ones that I mentioned are are ones that are in progress to being built. And, uh, they're a really exciting project because, uh, one of the first reasons I was drawn to them last year is because they had implemented this or they were planning to implement this concept of liquidity mining before that was kind of a popular concept. You know, having seen success of synthetics implementing that, that program, it was pretty kind of. I guess, intuitive at the time that when another project or another type of liquidity system was going to implement this, that it was going to see a massive amount of liquidity go into that protocol, just kind of success in general.
0: Mm -hmm. Kind of reading through the ThorChain white paper, um, you know, very high level. There are two primary economic drivers of the ecosystem staking and something called bonding. And this enables participants to earn rewards via a native token called Rune R U N E. And staking provides this primary source of liquidity to the network's liquidity pools, or what they call like continuous liquidity pools, CLPs. And these stakers collect fees on these assets, just kind of like on any other platform on a pro rata basis. And ThorChain also relies on nodes to bond these native rune tokens to ensure network security, right? These are effectively network validators, and these guys can earn a yield, I guess, by the inflation curve that's set by Thorchain, is is my understanding. So to help our listeners understand all of this, I kind of wanted to have you talk about something that is unique to ThorChain, which is their incentive pendulum and how it keeps the network staking and bonding behaviors in, in check.
1: Yeah, that's a kind of really complex, but also a, a, an important point for ThorChain, what they call the incentive pendulum, because you know you have this native asset, Rune, but it has two use cases, right? It's, it's used for securing the network because that's what the validators bond, but it's also used for liquidity provisioning because that is essentially the base pair asset that all other assets are bonded against. So like in Uniswap, right, you have ETH paired to, you know, an ERC-20 with ThorChain, you have Rune paired to, um, you know, whatever token that you want to pair it to. And so, uh, you know, you want to make sure that There's not too many tokens being bonded through these validators. but Then you also don't want to make sure that there's too many tokens being bonded or staked in these liquidity pools because if there's too many tokens staked in these liquidity pools, then you might not have enough runes securing the network. And you always want a lot of value being secure in the network. You always want these validators bonding a lot of value because if they don't, then they might have an incentive to be able to act in a malicious way and essentially Steal the assets that are being secured on Thorchain because mm. these validators are the ones that are essentially securing the network. They're the ones deciding, uh, you know, whether the, how these transactions are are processed and you know how these assets are are, are being swapped, right? Um, and at the same time, you also don't want these these validators bonding too much. You don't want too much income going to these validators because then you might not have enough rune being staked in, in these liquidity pools, and it's kind of like a very kind of careful balance that you want to maintain um, and that you want to kind of keep this equilibrium towards. And so ThorChain has this what's this called incentive pendulum where they will essentially shift the percentage of rewards going to either validators or to um, these liquidity pool providers based on you know how much is being kind of staked in each group at a certain period of time. Um, and so, you know, if there's too much being staked by the validators or bonded by the validators then less income will go to the validators and more will go towards these liquidity pools. And, and it will essentially incentivize a shifting of assets from validators to liquidity pools. That's kind of how it works.
0: Right. And all of this staking and, and bonding activity like requires me to have Rune, right? So the more Rune I have, then the more rewards I can have access to. So I guess Theoretically, all of this increase in buying activity for that token would push up the price of the token, which helps the liquidity in these pools, which will attract more liquidity mining activity on the platform. And so there's this like interesting flywheel effect, but I wonder though if this incentive program really just incentivizes the early bonders or the whales, right? People who actually have money to deploy into their native token because as I understand like there's some sort of requirement you need as a validator, right? Which isn't a small sum of money. I I think it's like 1 million room tokens to actually be like a network validator. So we're talking about how DeFi is really for the people, right? For retail participation. Um, How does this play out then on a platform like ThorChain?
1: Yes, ThorChain is kind of architected similarly to Cosmos in the manner that, you know, there are supposed to be not a huge amount of validators securing the network. The difference between ThorChain and, and Cosmos is that With Cosmos, you know, smaller players can delegate their tokens to uh, larger validators, which you know have a higher chance of being selected within the validator set and earning these validator rewards. Doorchain decided not to do that because you know that inherently creates a bit of a security issue, right? Because you know when you have delegation in play, what, what ends up happening is you can have validators having a bunch of tokens under their control, and for them to have a huge amount of I guess, essentially control over the network without having much capital at stake themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. So it could present a problem where, you know, you have all of these large valuers, which, you know, they might have like a lot of social proof or social capital, but they don't have that much economic stake or, or bond and skin in the game. And it might allow them to be incentivized to actually act maliciously. That's the reason why that delegation mechanism wasn't incorporated into ThorChain consensus. But, you know, those, those smaller validators, they can still benefit from activity in the ThorChain network because they can still stake in these liquidity pools. And that'll essentially give them an equal opportunity to benefit from an income generated from transactions going through these liquidity pools and the income that ThorChain essentially enables.
0: I see. And do you see that there's like a way for people to exploit this type of incentive mechanism? Maybe you touched on that just a little bit ago.
1: Um, I guess, you know, there there could be opportunities for people to pool their rune together and create nodes there, or there could be centralized validator services that come up and um, you know, they have people essentially give custody of their rune over to these services, and that could create a bit of a tricky environment. But that that's something that's I, th- I think hard to avoid. And I think you know validator services like that they have to put up quite a bit of social capital in the first place for people to trust them, and then they're also securing a lot of assets on, on a lot of other networks. So you know, that's kind of just another consideration. But I, I would say that's kind of an important question, and that's like a, a sort of balance that you know some other important. Economic research groups have studied quite extensively, like Gauntlet. So you know, if you want more information there, Gauntlet's put a good report out on, on Thorstein economics that is publicly available.
0: Cool. Yeah. And I'll drop that link in the show notes as well for our listeners. So before we move on to the next topic, let's take a quick break and hear a few words about Amber Group. This episode of the Crypto Unstacked podcast is presented by Amber Group. Amber Group is a fully integrated crypto finance platform offering a suite of secondary market services across trading, wealth management and financing solutions. We are backed by some amazing investors such as Paradigm and Pantera and work with clients and partners all over the world. Head on over to ambergroup.io to learn more about us. That's A-M-B-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.io. Now, as we're talking about these different types of ecosystems in DeFi that are pioneering these really interesting incentive mechanisms, I wanted to bring up something that Spencer Applebaum tweeted not too long ago. And he said that it's clear to him there are two competing ecosystems in DeFi, one which is of the Silicon Valley establishment, you know, like what we talked about, Compound, MakerDAO, ZeroX, and then there are... Other types of ecosystems that are more people-led, and those are the likes of Synthetics, Curve, Rune, uh, Bancor, and Ave. You know, Wi-Fi is, I'd say, and I, I think everyone would agree, is a people-led project. And it's played a very big part in expanding the yield farming design space. So I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that and whether that's like the next evolution of these types of new generation projects like even a, a step above the likes of synthetics and curve in the way that they are really allowing the community to govern the protocol.
1: Yeah, I mean why why thought, like when we think about like decentralization in terms of governance like there's definitely a spectrum but wi-fi is on like definitely like the solid end of the very decentralized spectrum like almost to like an extent where it's it's hard to believe andre kind of created this protocol and uh you know it was very successful and it was very obviously very useful to the community and he essentially gave up control of it completely to you know wi- wi-fi token holders you know there, there's no kind of one central leader or one central team behind this movement it's just whoever wants to be involved can be be involved and voice their opinion and and be involved in in these open discussions and so I, I think like that's really awesome right the fact that anyone kind of kind of drive the future of this protocol at the same time there's a lot of you know complications that come up with this type of very decentralized governance system because it, it is unorganized to a certain extent and it leads to some inefficiencies right because you know there's confusion around uh, you know what kind of decisions we want to drive forward when and how certain decisions are going to be implemented um you know who's Going to be leading what, you know, you don't have a kind of all the efficiencies that more centralized governance systems have. I'm kind of of the opinion that there are a lot of benefits that more kind of centralized leadership can offer. But I, I think there's kind of this hybrid solution or governance system that uh, something like Wi-Fi can adopt where there are people leading and, and driving and in and charge of certain tasks, but at the same time, they don't have complete control over the system and. I think that's something that a lot of us are thinking through right now: is how do we how do we mold that? And you know that, that that's obviously very exciting. And I, I think we can be able to find an effective system that Wi-Fi will be able to kind of set a, a really great precedent moving forward in terms of how other protocols are governed.
0: Yeah. Continuing along that line of thought, you talked about how this type of super decentralized governance affects something like the tokenomics. One of the more recent proposals that you were quite vocal about is sort of Wi-Fi inflation and what that model should look like. So could you just give us like a quick breakdown of what that proposal was it ultimately didn't pass, but you know what your reasoning was for kind of being against that proposal, and what you would propose going forward. Yeah,
1: sure. So to set the stage a little bit, one of the proposals that uh, went up recently was called uh, YIP thirty. They basically proposed that you know there would be this eight year inflation schedule where the total supply of Wi Fi increases from thirty thousand to fifty thousand. There was not any specifics in that proposal in terms of where that inflation would go. It was generally kind of the thought was that it would go towards a split between, you know, liquidity mining incentives and also future protocol design needs. So essentially funding costs towards future development, towards auditing, towards marketing, et cetera. You know, I, I'm in ingredients that, you know, inflation is, is definitely needed to fund those future costs and also to fund incentive programs that we might need in the future. But where, you know, I was kind of stuck on was I didn't agree that we should rush into this proposal to mint 20,000 tokens so soon without having a better understanding kind of what our needs might be in the future of how much we would exactly need a mint? We don't need to have an exact number. I don't. I don't think we should spend you know a year or two and be spending a huge amount of effort trying to figure out you know how much exactly we need. That's not possible. You know what I did think was that we did need some deeper thinking and some deeper research and looking at previous projects as an analog to understand other inflation mechanisms or or schedules that we could go towards. And also, you know, what our costs and and needs would be in the future, just having a general ballpark at least, because, you know, at this point, we don't have that yet. Although it's something that we're working towards. Another kind of disagreement that I had was going towards this model of setting an inflation schedule up front. This is something that, you know, we see with almost every other crypto project is that, you know, they have this set defined schedule of inflation where it's going to be 3% per year or 2% per year. But you know, there's essentially this, this set curve or this set schedule. There's a, there's a reason for that, right? It's because when people are investing in these projects, they want to know that these aren't going to be changing on them. They want to understand how much dilution there's going to be. And right. you know they want to know that that's not going to change in the future. But you know that doesn't mean that that's the optimal model, right? Just because people have done it before. For Wi-Fi, you know, I think the reason why that model might not be the case is because we don't have a good sense of what inflation will need to be or, and what our needs were. As I, I said that before. And like what you've seen with the, with a lot of other projects that have had these set inflation schedules is that they've realized that these inflation schedules that they've set before were not exactly ones that were perfect and. That have met the needs of the protocol in the future. And so, you know, a lot of these protocols are actually changing their inflation schedules. Maybe some of them are, I've seen, they're doubling their supply uh, because they realize they don't have enough in the treasury to uh, have these liquidity mining incentives or to be able to fund future development, et cetera, right? So I think if we know that we don't know what we want in the future, then we should have, or we should at least consider more of a flexible inflation schedule where maybe we can plan around quarterly. Or an annual basis, like traditional corporations do, and you know that will give us a lot more flexibility and also kind of less maybe controversial debate in the future if we were to kind of set something in stone right now.
0: I hear you, and that's what you call an open inflation model, right? That's that's what you meant by that. Uh, yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. I mean, as a Wi-Fi holder, what's keeping me incentivized then to hold on to this token for the long term?
1: So really kind of where we expect Wi-Fi to accrue value or how it expects to accrue value is from income generated. And right now, Wi-Fi or, you know, the wire and ecosystem is, is generating a lot of income for people that participate in Y pool and those that participate in, you know, these Y vaults. But right now, that's all being directed back to those liquidity providers. None of that is going back to Wi-Fi token holders, but kind of the goal in the future is that in reward or, yeah, in reward for, you know, being token holders and and driving forward the protocol and also potentially serving as some sort of capital backstop, that these Wi-Fi token holders are going to be rewarded through some percentage of this income that's being generated. Could be 1%, it could be 5%, it could be 10%. We don't know. That's something that, you know, we'll have to do some more research on and and figure out.
0: Yeah. And and also for our listeners, there was a forking event uh, where Wi-Fi forked into Wi-Fi 2, I'll call it. And and this type of forking is commonplace in crypto, right? But there's like a, a whole bunch of rustle around whether this new fork was a scam. And since then, I feel like there's been multiple forkings of, of Wi-Fi. And you know something I always like to think about is value accrual, right? It seems like despite these forks, most of the value was still being accrued to the original Wi-Fi tokens as they use the Y-curve, uh, Y-CRV pool. So, you know, users still have to deposit the stable coins into Curve to mint these Y-curve tokens, stake these tokens in the Yearn pool to mint these Wi-Fi 2 tokens. So, so what's your thoughts on, I guess, the validity or the sustainability, rather, of a fork like Wi-Fi 2? Um, and and you call this something very interesting on Twitter. You you called it a shitcoin perpetual motion machine that that these forks enable. I mean, can you just kind of expand more on that?
1: <laughs> yeah. So so this was like a really interesting dynamic because all of these clones they had forks, you know, the Wi-Fi token and these distribution pools for Wi-Fi, but they hadn't actually forked the Yern protocol, the you know itself. So you know, like these Y vaults and. Um, these, uh, like the Y-curve pool or whatever, they were all still using that part of like the original Wire ecosystem to be able to uh, distribute tokens, right? And so the usage of like those original like Wire ecosystem products, th- those accrue value essentially to YFI token holders, not, you know, these YFI to token holders, which I'm not sure if that was just something like a like an oversight or, or what on, on their part, but that's kind of like a, a major problem, right? Because you can't just mint a token out of nowhere and expect it to have value. There should be some you know mechanism for these tokens to have value in, in the future. And so you know that led to a lot of debate among like YF2 holders in terms of like, well, should we all also fork the other core like wire protocol products or should we like ask the Wi-Fi community to share some of the income uh, with us based on, you know, how much AUM or total value loss we're able to bring to the ecosystem. So I'm, I'm not sure, you know, where that, that uh, debate is right now. I'm I'm personally in favor of, you know, there some, being some type of referral program or some type of affiliate program where these other token models are rewarded for the amount of AUM or assets that they bring in. And into this YERN ecosystem because at the end of the day, they, they are helping YFI token holders. There is obviously some dissent among the community because they think, hey, these guys are kind of just copycats and they're not doing anything innovative. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. And then kind of the other interesting dynamic that emerged was that you know Andre through these YERN vaults was using the capital deposit into the YERN protocol to farm these YFI clones. Then this created like a dynamic where Wi-Fi token holders and wire and uh, liquidity providers were benefiting in like in in another way, like in a second layer type of way to, you know, these clones being created.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely something for someone who has not been following crypto at all and is kind of jumping in right now because they might have read something on Bloomberg, for example, about yield farming. They're probably like, what the heck is going on? And especially when you kind of join the crypto Twitter ecosystem, you have people posting things like blue wi-fi and red wi-fi i mean what what is that (laughs) i I guess i'll just ask you is that something that resembles wi-fi and wi-fi too or like some completely random meme
1: oh yeah so so all of these wi-fi clones they also essentially they change logo a little bit by changing the color or they like rotate the 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 logo a little bit and so that's what that blue and uh, red wi-fi refers to there's also a a wi-fi finance now
0: a wifey finance how do you spell that
1: it's uh, W-I-F-E-Y.
0: oh actual WiFi.
1: Uh, guess another another way to yeah another way to pr- pronounce wi-fi oh
0: this is too much too much So, Andrea, I wanted to pull out from the project focus and and talk more about Asia, uh, what we're seeing here in regards to, you know, DeFi East, particularly within the Chinese community, and perhaps you can talk about their thoughts on community governance, whether it's something that they care about or whether it's really just secondary to all of the yield farming that they're attracted by.
1: Yeah, just looking at Wi-Fi 2, for example, the a- Asian and the Eastern community is definitely taking inspiration from what's going on in this kind of like decentralized governance movement. So, you know, you, usually you see these projects kind of concepted in a very centralized manner where, you know, there's still kind of significant admin key privileges. But, uh, you know, with, with Wi-Fi 2, they had taken inspiration and they had completely burned the admin keys that, you know, had privileges to mint and, and do all these other things. And they had moved towards a kind of very similar community governance model that that Wi-Fi has, right? So they found a group of, I think, nine or eleven multi stakeholders that would be controlling uh, minting of Wi-Fi two, and then they, you know, have essentially you know decided that there was going to be no core leader or group of people leading this effort, but that you know it would be really kind of a community-owned effort, which I think is really awesome.
0: How do we see the community in Greater Asia grow then when it comes to? DeFi. Is is it really about the incentives or kind of is it more about like a philosophy or a mindset that needs to be established in order for us to see the type of network effects that we're seeing on these Western protocols?
1: Yeah. so, So what I would preface this with is really, I think the key value proposition of DeFi is that it allows for extremely, extremely fast innovation in financial technology because you have this ability to uh, essentially deploy new financial product or system within the span of like a day or like a few weeks or however long you know you want it to take whereas you know in the traditional financial world if you want to create a new financial product you know you have to go through like all these regulations you have to get these licenses and and go down these pathways and and spend a lot of money on, on lawyers and stuff like that and it's kind of a huge impediment to financial innovation right And so, you know, what's what's amazing about DeFi is that you don't have all this and you can bootstrap new projects like really easily and, and you can create these new economics and financial experiments, right? And have a lot of real money going into this, testing these experiments. Where I think like this relates to, you know, general Asian culture as it comes to creating new products is that generally, you know, you see a lot of duplication in Asian products where, you know, they take a lot of inspiration from Western products. And they borrow all of the, the same concepts. And, you know, there might be some tweaks here and there, but I would say, you know, it's kind of more an exception than the rule where there's something super innovative, you know, in that sense, a lot of the projects out of Asia in, in the DeFi space aren't that interesting, because they don't play on the key value proposition of DeFi, which is Experimentation, right, and creating completely new systems that we haven't seen before. But we are we are seeing this change. There are a lot of interesting projects out there that are working on new design models as it, as it relates to automated market makers or virtual assets, Strike Protocol, MCDAX, Dodo, or a few of them. You know, I am excited to see kind of what comes out of this movement in the East.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks for that overview and for kind of sharing what to be looking forward to in the next uh, few months or perhaps a few weeks, right? Projects tend to be shipping quite fast these days. But before we close out on our conversation about DeFi, I I did want to give you the opportunity, though, to talk about uh, your new fund called Mechanism Capital. You know, what the investment thesis is behind the fund and what you're excited about as an investor.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, mechanism capital is just kind of a continuation of what me and, uh, you know, a few of the other team members have been doing for the past, you know, two years, which is, you know, investing and being uh, an active participant of these DeFi protocols and, you know, really kind of trying to push the boundaries of, you know, new economic and financial experiments that are, that are um, being conducted in the, in the space. So. Um, you know, not just being an investor that, you know, puts some money in and, uh, you know, offers to connect you to a few other investors and, you know, give you a few tips in here, here and there. But, you know, actively, uh, you know, providing some insight or guidance based on, you know, the experience that, you know, we've had building and, and being involved in the governance of these other DeFi protocols uh, within their lifetime. We've seen, you know, DeFi protocols have had a lot of missteps. They've had exploits in the past. But they've also done a lot of things right, and uh, you know we we love to kind of share that experience with other projects that are getting started in the space.
0: Well said, and and really looking forward to seeing your fun officially launch and getting to know your other team members. So, Andrew, before we kind of close out here. I did want to ask you something that I ask all of my guests because I think it's a fantastic way for us to understand more of you as a person. So, Andrew, what's your most contrarian view as an investor or as an analyst of the space?
1: Oh, my most contrarian view. Uh, that's a hard one because I, I would say investing in a lot of these DeFi protocols was contrarian you know, <laughs> a year ago, but now it seems to be quite trendy. I mean, generally, like, I, I'm not sure if this would be considered contrarian, but uh, I'm a big fan of these. Some might consider them Ponzi schemes um, that are being launched on the blockchain, but I consider them more as like economic experiments. So people that are creating like new variants of forth or new variants of Wi-Fi, you know, some, some of them might have some type of like core product that, you know, they're actually accruing value to um, or they're accruing value from. But other, other ones, you know, they're maybe just like mm-hmm. memes, right? Like attendees and, you know, they are, uh, I, I guess, like playing off of like concepts from 4chan and kind of turning this into some this big grand economic system. And, uh, you know, these might not go anywhere and they might just be a short term trade. But, you know, some of them, they might actually, you know, create some long term value in. And those, those projects really, really excite me.
0: Andrew, you're bringing us right into the last section of our conversation, which is the rapid fire. So I'll just start off on a point that you made just now. We've seen a lot of funny money come online since the start of the DeFi craze. You know, some are getting real traction Mm -hmm. and others are capitalizing on Ponzonomics. What's your favorite DeFi funny money?
1: Oh, right now, it would would definitely be Tendies. That's, uh, I guess, uh, a really old uh, joke from the Fort Fort. 4chan era. Um, but this wasn't a Wi-Fi fork. Uh, you know, they have their kind of like own system of Ponzonomics where they created this kind of like new token from thin air and, you know, they seeded this Uniswap pool and, you know, they're over time, they're burning supply from this Uniswap pool, but then they're also incentivizing people to buy this token because part of the supply that they take from the Uniswap pool goes to these these top holders over time. In the, in the background, they're actually doing some really interesting things like, you know, they're, they're funding these kind of uh, really interesting community initiatives. They are partnering with these gaming companies to create kind of like new legs of this ex- economic experiment. They're creating NFTs, which can be bought using tokens in this ecosystem. They're looking to see how they can innovate in Ponzonomics and in other ways. Yeah, it's, it's it's exciting. It's This one is definitely, I, I can tell it's not, you know, a short term pump and dump.
0: <laughs> I didn't realize that they were getting into gaming. That's a whole other ecosystem that is very much actually connected to crypto in, in many ways, especially the mentality. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they ultimately, I guess, integrate into various uh, virtual games.
1: Yeah, it'll be exciting. And, uh, but also maybe this doesn't take off and you know, this thing goes to zero. <laughs> But you know what? It's a fun experiment.
0: And uh, last question here. What's something that you would not have expected to happen in the DeFi space at the beginning of 2020?
1: Sure. You know, if you had asked me whether traditional financial institutions and training firms would have been putting a lot of capital into DeFi, uh, you know, this early in 2020, I definitely would not have expected that. Uh, you know, I think of these firms as generally being pretty risk adverse and used to kind of their centralized systems. But I think the yields right now that are being generated are, are so high and they, they can't ignore them. Right. So, you know, mm-hmm. you, you've had, I guess, an explosion of, of money coming in DeFi on the scale of, of billions, not just, you know, tens of millions.
0: We definitely need to see that in the space in order to see it grow, uh, both in CFI and in DeFi as well. Andrew, it's been a pleasure. How can our listeners connect with you and learn more about Mechanism Capital?
1: Sure. So I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash R-E-W-K-A-N-G. Mechanism Capital will be releasing some more information shortly.
0: Great. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I certainly learned a lot from our conversations and know that our listeners will have a lot to take away as well. And we hope to bring you on again very soon.
1: Great, Leslie. Thanks for having me.
0: As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify and Anchor.fm slash Crypto Unstacked. Do engage with us through social media. I'll provide details in the show notes. And connect with me on Twitter at Les That's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0. Would love to chat with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care and see you at our next episode.